brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Again, higher side chatters as we dive back into the world of magic, the occult, and the material one might refer to as the rejected knowledge of Western civilization. Because whether you're examining shamanism, cultures immersed in nature, award show ceremonies, or the secret orders on the edges of society, the esoteric toolbox is there. And we would be wise to educate ourselves, engage with it, and strengthen those mental muscles necessary for nudging our lives towards unfolding in accordance with our will, as opposed to the will of corporate oligarchs, culture shapers, marketers, and the modern-day priest class in the shadows of the empire. Because if you don't take charge of your own life, there's always someone willing to give you a low roll on some payroll totem pole for improving their own. And the more I have learned about magical potency, the more I feel like our overcrowded concrete cities make it difficult to see the esoteric energy of the natural world. Couple that with the coming decline of Western civilization, the waning worldview of infinite industrial growth in a finite reality, and some troubled times of turbulence ahead for the loyal subjects of the American empire. And with this context, I think the crossroads of magic and nature are more important than ever. And that is when, dear people, you go and find the headmaster of the Druidic Order of the Golden Dawn, who is today's guest, John Michael Greer. If you're unfamiliar, John is a lifelong student and teacher of the esoteric ways whose work focuses primarily on the overlap between ecology, spirituality, and the future of industrial society. For 12 years, he was the Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of the Druids, and he is the prolific author of over 50 books, as well as the Archdruid Report Journal. You can find even more of his writings at his website, ecosophia.com, and I am psyched to spend some time with him today. A master mage for the modern age and an ecological educator extraordinaire, John Michael Greer. Welcome to the Higher Side. Thank you. It's great to be on. 
Yes, man, this is really going to be a good time. I've had many magical guests, but none whose emphasis is on druidry. And obviously that makes things like respect for nature, paganism, and Lord of the Rings even come to mind. But uh, maybe to kick this off, you can elaborate on what druidry means to you. What makes it stand out amongst the other magical boxes a person could be in? Primarily the focus on the natural world, on the environment, on ecology, on the fact that we are, each of us, every human being is actually part of nature. We think we're outside it. We're never outside it. And so from childhood, I had a very deep connection with the natural world. My idea of a good time was to go someplace green and hide. It was really a very good fit when I finally encountered a Druid organization that was able to do some instructions and teaching this kind of thing. You know, I'd done various other things before then. I've done some various other things since. But Druidry, because of that green focus, really became the central to my own spiritual path. I think that makes a lot of sense. And what can you tell us about, say, the history of Druidry? Because as as I understand, a lot of the original material is just lost, and modern Druidry is more like a reinvention in the spirit of, rather than some type of ongoing continuation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's entirely fair. The original Druids were the priests, the intellectuals, the occultists, and so on, in the old Celtic countries of northwestern Europe, Ireland, Britain, Gaul, what's now France, of course, and a few other places. That's where the Druids were. They were there until first the Roman Empire, and then the Christian Church squeezed them out. And that was the end of the story, except that in the very early 18th century, in England, mostly, there were a lot of people who were looking at the options that were provided at that time. You had the choice between a very narrow kind of dogmatic Christianity on the one hand, and a very narrow kind of dogmatic scientific materialism on the other. This may sound familiar. And there were a lot of people who were going, you know, I want door number three. And when the various opinion molders and so forth said, well, there isn't a door number three, the response is, okay, we'll invent one. There were various things that came out of that, that period of ferment, of course. But one of them was what we call the Druid revival, the reinvention of Druidry as a nature-centered spiritual path. And it involved drawing together what little was known, what little is still known, about the activities of the ancient Druids, what their traditions were, what we can get from old Celtic legends and so on. But it was also very much from the beginning focused on paying attention to nature and learning the spiritual lessons that nature has to teach. Since, you know, the ancient Celts may go away, but trees still grow. So, you know, it just kind of picked up from there. The first documented Druid organization we know of was in the early 1740s, There are traditions that was one founded in 1717. Nobody's found the paperwork yet. It reached the United States in 1798 when the first Druid organization in this country was founded in the Hudson River Valley. And it's been here ever since. Hmm. That's so fascinating. And so my initial interest in magic, maybe this audience's interest in magic, comes from sort of a weird place. It comes from Long and deep dives down conspiratorial rabbit holes. You know, obviously magic and ritual can bump up against the conspiratorial at times, but to see it as a strictly negative thing, I think is really naive. And in terms of its value to the individual who might be a bit wary of magic, something I've heard you say that rings true to me is that one of the main lessons of occultists is that we have value and potential beyond how much money we can make for some employer. And to me, that's the real conspiracy affecting most people, that we've been kept ignorant of our own value and potential. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing is, people talk about secret societies as though they're a bad thing. Some of them are, no question. But secret societies have also been the toolkit of the secret society. 
of secrecy, of doing stuff, of using ritual and form and using occult teachings and so on, that has also been used over and over again by people to get out from under the sort of overarching structure of our society that wants to cram us into little pigeonholes where we can work to make someone else rich. That's been going on for a very long time. And one of the projects that I've just recently finished is a history of conspiracies and secret societies. And it talks about both sides of that. You have organizations that are dedicated to maintaining the status quo, and you have organizations that are dedicated to overthrowing it or subverting it or simply easing outside its reach, where you can do things that don't necessarily benefit your employer. <laughs> Cheers to that. Always good to be measured and motivated to take the reins of life. And I've also heard you say that it's not very wise to spend so much time brooding over the evil actions of the elite. And maybe that's something where a conspiratorial audience would say, hey, wait a minute. What do you mean? <laughs> but elaborate on that for us. Why is that unwise? Why shouldn't we spend too much time on that? Okay. The thing is, you only have so many hours in your life. You only have so much energy. Do you want to spend your time brooding over what the other person is doing wrong, or do you want to spend your time changing your own life? Now, it's useful to be aware of what's going down in the world, but if you're putting 24-7 into fixating on the evil evilness of those evil people over there being evil, what are you doing in your own life? Mm -hmm. How much energy do you have? What do you want to put it toward? You can put it toward brooding over them. You can put it toward doing something else. But there's also a magical principle here. What you contemplate, you imitate. Whatever you spend most of your time brooding over, that's going to shape your thinking. That's going to shape your emotions. It's going to shape your behavior. And so if all of your energy is focused on the evil, evil, evilness of those evil people over there doing evil, you're going to become like them bit by bit. Mm. Not a good idea. Again, be aware of what's going down. Focus your attention on the alternative. Basic rule of magic. If you're doing a working to make change in your life, don't focus on what you're changing away from. Focus on what you're changing toward. Build up the positive energy toward that. That's going to work. Mm -hmm. Brooding on the negative doesn't. Along those same lines, I've also heard you say that if you didn't have the traps of the empire, you probably wouldn't be fueled to get out of it. And I think that's kind of a, a wise way to flip it on its head and think about it as a positive. Yeah. The thing is, one of the other principles of the occult tradition is that everything that happens happens for a reason. We didn't just land here in the mess we're in now, and a thumping great mess it is, of course, just at random, okay? There are reasons why we backed ourselves into this corner, and this is the process by which we learn not to do anything this stupid in the future. So, again, what's your alternative? What do you want instead of the empire? And that's crucial. If you look at what's going on, I'm, I'm going to go political here briefly for a moment. If you look at what's going on in American politics right now, okay? The Democrats are losing because they haven't articulated an alternative. Mm. It's all, those people are evil, those people are bad, you know, and that's fine. But if you don't articulate an alternative, you can't take people to it. Right. If you don't have a direction to go, you can't go. And so this, the thing is, this applies to people's lives also. If you're stuck in a rut, you're working a dead-end job because that's all you can get. And, you know, here's this problem, here's that problem. You're feeling crushed. I get that. It's a reality. I've been there. But that's when it's most crucial to say, what do I want instead of this? And how can I get there? Not, you know, well, I'm going to win the lottery someday. No, you're not. The lottery is a tax on people who don't understand math. 
how are you going to make change happen? And once you start thinking in those terms, where do I want to get to and how am I going to get there? All of a sudden, there's an exit door. And it may take you a long time to open it. It may take you a long time to pass through it. But there's a way out and you can make change in your own life. And as people make changes in their own lives, the empire falls apart because all the empire is is the sum total of all our acts of obedience. Mm. <laughs> That's what the empire is. And if we stop obeying, if we look and say, no, I'm going to do something else with my life. I'm going to walk out of the cubicle. I'm going to walk out of the Skinner box where I'm sitting there like a rat pushing on a lever. I'm going to walk away because there are doors. There are exits. A piece of the empire falls off and goes splat into the mud. Mm. Yes, and I agree with what you said there in the beginning. People do seem more attracted to a bad vision than no vision at all. It's just kind of the way we're wired. Mm -hmm. And in terms of manifesting your own reality, a lot of people might have doubts about that. But then I would ask, how well defined are your own goals? How well defined are, are the things you want? If you visualize it in your head, a lot of people don't do that very often. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of people have no idea. All they know is that they want something other than what they've got. And that's fine. That's a good place to start. That dissatisfaction is power. But you need to aim it. You need to direct it so it's not just sitting there grinding at you. And so, yeah, to actually take the time to think through, what do I want in life? Not this. Okay, what do I want in life? And how might I get there? Now, there's another concept here that's very useful. There's a spectrum of power that extends from you to the empire, okay? And the empire is at the one end because the empire controls collectivities. It controls the big picture. You control the details of your own life. The closer you can make change toward your end of the spectrum, the more power you have. The further you go into the empire's end of the spectrum, the more power the empire has. And that's why almost consistently, when people try to make big changes at the big level all at once, when they haven't changed their own lives, they fail because they're trying to make change on the empire's turf. When they change their own lives first, then change unfolds from that. People who've adopted change in their own life, they get together. Change happens on the level of families, of small groups, of communities, and the empire falls apart because everyone's turned their back and walked away. Mm. Good lessons all around. That dissatisfaction point is key because knowing how lazy I can be, if I didn't have that extreme dissatisfaction with where I was, I wouldn't be where I am. And that really is important. And some days I'm like, maybe I should thank the system for giving me so many terrible options that I was <laughs> forced to do something else on my own. I get that. I, I ended up <laughs> becoming a writer because I couldn't stand any of the other options that I had. That was what mm -hmm. drove me back to the keyboard over and over and over again until I finally got into print and kept me writing while I was going through the, you know, you're just earning pizza money stage and working a job on the side. If you're perfectly satisfied with the nice little padded cell they've got you in, that's fine. For the rest of us, you know, we need to harness that dissatisfaction, do something with it. Right. That's the whole point of the ignorance is bliss thing. I had friends that were totally satisfied with a mundane job, and I would look at them and be like, man, I'm almost jealous. Because <laughs> it'd be so much easier. Mm -hmm. But, you know, <laughs> sure, I'm sure it's very easy if you have a lobotomy, too. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So let me ask a little more about that relationship between the natural world and magic, because since it is something you folded into you know, your magical life, because a lot of Westerners 
are pretty non-participatory. I won't say removed from nature, but we don't participate in it very much. And it seems like that might be why a magical worldview isn't immediately obvious to us. But it seems like if we were to live within the wilderness, I guess, I suspect that it would start rushing back. Would you agree? Well, to some extent. The thing is, I've seen counter-arguments. I've watched people, you know, move out into the middle of nowhere and keep on living stuck in their own mental things. The thing is, it's not so much even that we're separated from nature, it's that we ignore nature just as we ignore magic. I'm going to start with a magical example and then go to a natural example, okay? Most people have experienced what back in a certain period of the past, a certain generation in the past, we used to call it the vibes. People have vibes. Places have vibes. You feel a certain thing when you walk into a place, when you meet a person you don't know. If you pay attention to it, and over the long term, of course, a lot of us did back in the day, you realize that you're actually sensing something. It's not a, just a purely imaginary, purely subjective thing. You're actually experiencing something. And you can sit down and talk to someone else saying, man, did you get the vibe at that party? Oh, man, it was heavy. So you're actually perceiving one of the things that magic works with. But people are taught not to pay attention to it. You don't talk about those things. In childhood, most of us are bullied into silence about things like that. You're not supposed to pay attention to the things that aren't supposed to exist, even though they do. And so it takes things like a counterculture, like the one I came in on the tail end of, to give people the freedom to actually say, no, I felt something. I really did notice that kind of creepy vibe that person had. And I'm going to pay attention to that. So that's an example of how we actually live within the magical worldview, but ignore it all the time. In the same way, in exactly the same way, nature is around us everywhere. We literally cannot get outside it. You have a physical body, presumably, and it's not a robot. That body is a bundle of nature. It has its own cycles. It interacts with the cosmos on various levels. You're constantly being influenced by that bit of nature that carries you around everywhere. And yet, people ignore that. They avoid it. They don't want to talk about it. Anytime it gets too obviously obtrusive, where there's a definite cycle or a definite process that is natural, that is not conscious, well, you get the reaction to pull out an obvious example, the way guys respond to any talk about women menstruating. Okay. Mm. Oh my God, that's too <laughs> natural. I don't freak out. But a lot of guys freak out about that. I have no idea why. It's nature. Okay. Deal. <laughs> Um, you know, if you are male and heterosexual, presumably you have a certain fondness for the part of the body in question. Get used to its habits. It's friendly. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so this is the thing. We're not outside of nature. You can attune yourself to nature in the middle of the biggest city in the world because nature is right there all the time. Okay. You've got the weather. We never did manage to get those domed cities that I was promised when I was a child. You've got the weather. You've got the entire structure of the atmosphere shaping your lives. The city around you, what's it made out of? It's made out of products of nature. Iron from the mines, concrete, mine from the ground, all the other stuff here. It's all just a reworking of nature. Now, it's a reworking according to a really simple-minded sort of human plan. That's why we have all these right angles and straight lines. But it's all still nature. We just have to pay attention to that. Awaken ourselves to nature in ourselves, around us, in other people, in all things. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you're going to get a lot farther than if you say, go running out into the wilderness without, you got to free your mind before you free anything else. Well said. And 
ignoring nature is probably a much better term to use than, you know, being removed from it. But something I've been kind of stuck on lately is just the fact that we don't know our own minds that well, and we don't spend any time overnight alone. And I think mm-hmm. that you'd have to be pretty dense to not realize the world is more than just the material. If you were to spend a night alone with your own thoughts, no Netflix, no other people, no electricity, mm-hmm. I think it just kind of emerges. Oh, yeah. You've hit a really important point here. And the point, we can sum it up in the word alone. People flood their minds and their environments with noise. I mean, you'll probably remember this. Not that many years ago, you go to a bar, you go to a restaurant. If it's a sports bar, there might be a TV. Okay? Other than that, there was no TV. TV on the walls of restaurants? Please, we don't do that. And they've spread to the point that you go into most restaurants and there are like televisions on every wall or televisions lined up side by side in a band. So you constantly have this jabber being focused on you. So why are people doing this? What's the point of that? It's to drown out their own thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's to keep from noticing what's happening because the television gives you this imaginary world that's all nice and neat and clean and where things behave the way our cultural mythologies insist that they ought to behave. If you look away from the screen, walk outside, you're going to find out the cultural mythology is simply a lie. But that's why the television is there. Because if the television is there, you can pretend that we're still progressing. You can pretend that progress is still happening. You can pretend that all these things that we were promised by the media and by the pundits and by the politicians are still happening, even though they're not. Mm-hmm. Even though most of us experience that on a day-by-day basis. So getting away from the noise, getting away from the jabber and the jerky little colored pictures on the glass screens that surround us all the time, hallucinations, (laughs) crazier than the things you'll find most schizophrenics babbling about, you have to get away from that stuff. Right. And yeah, spending a night alone, no people, no TV, you know, you can have a light bulb if you want. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, one of the basic practices, not just of Western occultism or Druidry, but actually of nearly all spiritual traditions, is meditation. And meditation can be defined very simply as sitting down, shutting up, and doing something that forces you to be alone with your thoughts for a while. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly powerful because that's exactly what you're not supposed to do. That's why you have the televisions yelling at you all the time, to distract you from your own thoughts. If you set aside 15 minutes a day to do one of the many different kinds of meditation, as long as it's not the kind that involves shutting off your thought, And of course, those are very popular in the corporate world these days. But any kind of meditation that forces you to encounter what you're thinking, it will do marvels to loosen the grip of the system on your mind and your imagination. Well, that is exactly what I was going to ask you about, because I've heard you talk about this empty mind meditation versus a more focused attention for deep thinking. And I think most people really only hear about that empty mind stuff, like you said. And I there's a good reason for that. Exactly. Maybe you can elaborate on those differences and the importance of the latter. Okay. The current version of it is being marketed under the label mindfulness meditation. What happened was that they took a specific technique that was used by some Buddhist schools in Southeast Asia, okay? They stripped it of all of its spiritual content, ripped it out of context, and started marketing it to corporate flax as a tranquilizer. You know, this is the one where you sit there and you empty your mind and you allow thoughts to rise like bubbles and just let them flow away from you. It's very much like being under a heavy tranquilizer. 
And it's become extremely popular because if you do that, it does decrease your stress. And if you're a corporate flack, you have a lot of stress, of course. Mm-hmm. You're constantly worried about clawing your way further up the hierarchy and not being shoved down by someone clawing them right past you and all the other things that if you're a corporate flack, you have to worry about. But it also makes you numb. Mm-hmm. I tend to call it mindlessness meditation because you'll routinely get people, certainly back in the day, we saw them all the time, people who did that or mantra meditation, one of the other thought-stopping meditations. And some of them reached some very impressive states of spiritual enlightenment because they couldn't think their way out of a wet paper bag. Hmm. And so they sort of bumbled through life being all enlightened and blissful and walking out in front of cars and things like that. The kind of meditation that I tend to teach, I teach pretty conclusively, there are two modes and you practice both of them. The one is called discursive meditation and that is meditation on a thought. The basic version is you sit down in a comfortable position, not too slouched. So sit down in a chair, put your hands on your thighs, breathe deeply for a while. And then you call to mind some concept, some image, some symbol, something you want to think about. You hold it before your mind for a little while, just sort of not thinking about it, but just having it in your mind. And then you let various trains of thought rise. Say you choose the empire. Mm -hmm. That's your subject of meditation. You think about that for a while. And then there are various trains of thought connected to it. And maybe you think of, okay, the role of the media is propping up the empire. Okay. Let me think about that. And you follow that train of thought out until you reach a conclusion. And then you stop and you get your little notebook. You write down any conclusions you came to. You put it away. You go, you take a few more deep breaths to clear yourself on with your day. Really simple. But you're spending that time inside your own mind, doing your own thinking, not thinking what the television tells you to. And if you do that, again, 15 minutes a day, amazing things happen. The other kind, the distinctive druid meditation, but of course we do both. Just go outside someplace. Do this at least once a week. Go outside someplace in the most natural environment you can find. And that could be, you know, an empty lot covered with weeds. That's nature, okay? You do not have to go to the Rocky Mountains. Any place where you can see the sky and where there are green things growing. And either stand or sit, depending on what you have, and just watch. Pay attention. Notice what's happening. Open all your senses and perceive. Don't pay attention to yourself here. You're paying attention to the natural world. If you're still enough, the very small animals that are there may come out and go, wow, that's not acting like a human being. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not jumping around all the time. You know, amazing things happen when you do that. So these are the two ends of Druid meditation. We have the discursive meditation, the concentrated thinking on subjects, and we have the awareness meditation where you are being aware of nature. And both of those pop you out of the empire, pop you out of the official mode of thinking. Discursive meditation by teaching you to think your own thoughts. And the other kind, by being aware of something that's not invented by human beings, something that's part of the natural order of things. Again, what you contemplate, you imitate, right? So you fill your mind with nature, and all of a sudden, you start moving and acting and thinking a little more naturally. And you keep it up. Strange things happen. I love that. It's such unique advice, or it's a rare description of meditation in terms of what I've been told. So Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty important. I like it. Yeah. The thing that happened, and it's very unfortunate, back around the turn of the last century, there was an organization called the Theosophical Society that was very into the idea of teaching Eastern mysticism to Western people. A good idea. But they were so popular that their idea of meditation, which was more of the thought-stopping sort, their idea of meditation became just the universal. And the other traditions of meditation, including traditions that have been going in the Western world for a very long time, just kind of got ignored. 
It's only been in recent years that people have started to dig things out from the heap and say, wow, you know, this is really interesting. This has potentials that the sort of thought-stopping meditation doesn't have at all. I feel a lot of times like a dumpster diver, you know, I'm going down the back alleys of Western civilization, pop open the dumpster, going, wow, look at this. I bet that still works. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And I've also heard you say that you don't really need a lot of the tools of ceremonial magic, that you could actually progress through the tradition of the Golden Dawn, stark naked in an empty room. And I found that a little surprising, but why was it important to you to incorporate druidry into that? What did you see missing from the Golden Dawn? Of course, the nature stuff, but talk mm -hmm. about that synergy between them and the fact that you don't really need those tools. Okay. Let me talk, first of all, a little bit about ceremonial magic, because the point of ceremonial magic, the, the way that it works, is that you externalize things. You take patterns in your own mind, you externalize them into objects. You do this ritual to consecrate a wand, okay? That wand represents your will. That wand is a physical expression, a symbol, an emblem of your will, and you work with that wand to help you build the capacity to will. In the same way, each of those other fancy working tools, all the complex hardware, of ceremonial magic. They're all representations of things that are present in your own consciousness. It's useful to do the tools. Many people find that a very effective way to do it. You don't actually need them. Now, I did them. I've done the whole classic Golden Dawn thing with the whole turkey with all the trimmings, if you will. And it did me a lot of good. When I was reworking the tradition for the Celtic Golden Dawn, the specific tradition I work in these days, I decreased the number of tools significantly because, you know, all things considered, the Victorian period did have this mania for clutter. And you can get the same effects with fewer pieces of hardware. These days, I think there's a little less need for the clutter. And I don't know that I'd recommend doing the entire Golden Dawn system from start to finish, stark naked in an empty room. You can if you want to. But you certainly don't necessarily need all the clutter, all the knickknacks and bric-a-brac. Now, in terms of Druidry in the Golden Dawn, again, a little background here, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, founded in 1887, the source of most of the really effective methods of ceremonial magic we've got these days. It's publicly available now. It's, if you will, open source. There are books. I edited Israel Gardi's big collection a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So you can find out all about it. And it is a systematic method of learning how to use the secret potentials of yourself. That's what it's about. It is Victorian. It is full of bric-a-brac and knickknacks, but it works. And so the one thing that I found a little mm, less than pleasing about it is that it's very much focused on a Judeo-Christian model of spirituality, which is fine if you happen to be Jewish or Christian, which I'm not. So as a Druid, I was going, you know, this ought to be convertible. It ought to be possible to take these techniques, these tools, these methods, and put them into a context where they use a druidical spirituality rather than a Judeo-Christian one. Now, I was kind of mulling over this. I was doing some research on some other things. I found out somebody had got there first. The original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, as I mentioned, founded in 1887, blew itself sky high in a series of internal political quarrels between 1901 and 1903. And it was a big mess. The entire British occult scene was thrown into turmoil by this there were a couple of fistfights. Alistair Crowley got shoved down a flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. It was a Donnybrook. And so a lot of people who had been in the Golden Dawn basically fled for shelter to other organizations that weren't going through that kind of mess. It so happened that the Druid scene in England at that time was very calm. There were a bunch of Druid orders. They all more or less got along. Everyone was you know, doing the rituals and this kind of stuff. And, you know, hey. and so a bunch of Golden Donnies ended up there because they wanted a nice 
place where they could practice alternative spirituality without having to be screamed at by opponents and this kind of stuff. So they came to the Druid scene and they brought all these Golden Dawn things with them. And so between the two world wars, you had a whole bunch of little organizations that fused the Golden Dawn methods with Druid nature spirituality. They did not survive, as far as I know, there may be some out there hidden, you know, because secret societies are secret. Guess what? (laughs) There may be some out there, but I was not able to find any record of any of them surviving after Wicca hit the big time and became so very popular as it did. But I was thinking, okay, this really sucks that there were all these marvelous things being done by these people and no trace survives. And then, of course, it sank in, okay, I'm a Golden Dawn initiate. I've done the Golden Dawn system from top to bottom. I'm a druid. I've been fully initiated and done complete training in three different traditions of druidry. I can reverse engineer the thing. So I did. Mm. It took me about five years of very hard and intensive work. But that's where the book, The Celtic Golden Dawn, came from. A system of Golden Dawn magic for people who are into druid nature spirituality. And I'm very pleased that it got a lively response from other people who had the same interest. And so an organization titled, of course, The Druidical Order of the Golden Dawn, has come into being. It's very quiet. We don't advertise. And anybody who buys the book, The Celtic Golden Dawn, reads it carefully, will find out how to get in touch. And here we are. (laughs) So basically, that has made it possible for a lot of people who aren't comfortable with Judeo-Christian versions of spirituality to really get into the very advanced, very powerful methods of personal transformation that the Golden Dawn system has to offer. I'm actually working on some other versions of it. I'm working with a guy named Sven Eriksson. I'll let you guess where he's from. Uh, And uh, Sven and I are working on one for the heathen community, people who worship the old Norse or Germanic gods, Odin, Thor, and so on. So that's one project. I've also been doing some stuff for other people who are into polytheist faiths that worship many gods. So that seems to be going pretty well, and the results have been very pleasant. Very cool. I really like hearing people reincorporate magic back into history because it is a third rail that is left out of the history books, but it is very important. And it's also a huge chunk that's missing from American history because we're taught the boring parts and we think America is this Christian nation, but there's plenty of sorcerers, mystics, and magic to fold back into the big picture, isn't there? Oh my God, yes. The thing is, when America got going, all of the misfits, All of the eccentrics, all of the people who couldn't stand what was the situation they were in in Europe, packed up and moved here. Some of them were religious fanatics, like the pilgrims. We all hear about them. You know, they were sufficiently totalitarian that they still appeal to our historians. But how many people remember that in 1698, a couple of boatloads of German Rosicrucian mystics landed in Pennsylvania, founded a commune. And communes go that far back. And a lot of their practices ended up being passed on, on the one hand, into Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic, and the other hand, into just the general magical practice up and down through the colonies. The United States was crawling with occultists. It was full of people who were practicing magic, who were practicing witchcraft, who were practicing alchemy, who were practicing all kinds of strange things. This notion that until 1967, everybody in America was this straight-laced Christian who kept their knees tightly together is consummate nonsense. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a weird country, and it still is. (laughs) We need to reclaim, you know, make America weird again is the slogan I'd like to see. Amen. Amen. And let me (laughs) ask you about the era of the Salem witch trials, because hysteria is Mm -hmm. no longer a sufficient answer to me now that I actually think magic is more than just superstition. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious your analysis of that time period. 
Okay. The thing is, there was a lot of very messy stuff going on at that time. You had the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the archetypal Puritan colony, which was a religious dictatorship. Okay. These people were the Daesh, the jihadis of the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And they had this, you know, the usual religious intolerant notion, you know, we have the right way and we have the right to force everybody at gunpoint into doing exactly what we want. And of course, not everyone played along. And so you had this whole cascading series of crises all through the history of the Massachusetts Bay Colony until eventually it was forced, the religious dictatorship was broken, and it was forced to accept something closer, you know, an elective government and a legislature rather than just the ministers running things. So the Salem Witch Trials was part of that. And a lot of it seems to have focused around, you've heard of the slave Tituba, who mm -hmm. was from the West Indies, who had a typical African diaspora knowledge of folk magic. And in all innocence, she taught that to some girls. And of course, it was whipped up from there. There were economic factors. There was a lot of quarrel between Salem Village and some of the other communities around there. And then, of course, there was the attempt by the authorities to clamp down on anything that looked like religious dissidents. And of course, accusations of witchcraft are great for that because you can whip people up in a frenzy and start hanging or burning at the stake over in Europe. But here, of course, they used the rope. Mm -hmm. So was there magic actually involved? Of course there was. The thing is, magic is practiced everywhere. There has never been a human society anywhere in history, any place on the world where magic has not flourished. This is something you will not find in the mainstream history. They always try to say, no, magic belongs to the superstitious past. Well, there are probably as many people practicing magic per capita in today's America as there have ever been. Mm -hmm. The superstitious past is right now. <laughs> and so that was, I think, the broader picture for the Salem Witch Trials, this ugly combination of religious tyranny, economic pressure, desire to keep the Massachusetts Bay Colony under a religious dictatorship, and some kids and a slave who happened to stray outside the bounds of orthodoxy and turn into an excuse to crack down for economic advantage mm -hmm. on some poor people in Salem Village. It's a very old, very ugly story. One of the other things, of course, that happened, and fortunately, the people involved stayed on the right side of the grass for a good deal longer. I currently live in Rhode Island. Rhode Island was founded by people who were bailing out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. I mean, this was the place where the idea of religious liberty first got proclaimed in the New World. There was a strange guy named Roger Williams, who was one of the first Baptist preachers back when the Baptists were left-wing. And... Here in Providence, we have the First Baptist Church. It's not the First Baptist Church of Providence. It's the First Baptist Church. Hmm. And that was founded by Roger Williams, among others. And his whole thing, put it in his inimitable terms, forced worship stinks in the nostrils of God. <laughs> Poetic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you have places like that. You have Rhode Island, you have Pennsylvania, you have Maryland, which was also founded as a state where, or as a colony originally where religious freedom was allowed. And it kind of spread from there. People don't talk about that in history. They don't talk about all of the different alternative spiritualities, the different magical traditions, the incredibly rich history we have here in America of alternative thought and alternative practice. Because both the left and the right, in their own way, get an advantage out of insisting, no, 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 up until 1967, everybody was a cardboard cutout who did whatever we said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all so interesting. And 
Another thing on the subject of America, so I have read a couple of your books, most recently Dark Age America, about the coming decline of industrial civilization, mm-hmm. that we could never have infinite economic growth in a world of finite resources. That should be obvious. Bing. That our exploitation and waste of these resources is coming back to bite us very soon. Well, mm-hmm. I know you've studied the ecology of failing civilizations historically. When you look at that, can you talk to us about the reoccurring template and how America currently maps onto that? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about how civilizations fall. Okay. The basic thing that happens is the civilization will build up all of this infrastructure in a rush when it's in its growth period, and it can no longer pay to maintain it. Go look at the streets in front of your house someday. You'll see what I mean. Infrastructure has to be maintained. Maintenance costs build over time. The more infrastructure you build, the more your costs mount, but also the more you draw down your resource base. Any given piece of land, any given continent, any given country only has so many of any given resource. You've got so much iron ore, you've got so much this, you've got so much oil, or what have you. And if your society can figure out how to live within the limits of the renewable resources, the crops that it can grow, the wood that it can produce, the sun and water and wind for power and so on, then what's going to happen, it's going to go build up a lot of infrastructure. The infrastructure is going to cost too much. The civilization basically goes bankrupt. A lot of the infrastructure goes down. You have a normal historical cycle, but there's a bottom because you've got that continuous supply of resources. If you're like Americans and you say, hey, look at all this oil and all these minerals we can mine and everything, let's use it all. then you build up this immense infrastructure and you burn all the easily accessible oil. So you're left pumping out stuff, some cracks in shale, and you're left with immense bills, which you can't cover, and declining resources and declining environmental quality, and everything just costs more and more and more until nobody can pay it anymore. And you slide down into a dark age. That's what happened with Rome. That's what happens with most civilizations that do the up with a rocket, down with a stick routine. The thing you want to look for is, first of all, look at your ordinary working people and see how are they doing. When they go from, you know, your average working person can afford a place to live and whatever the vehicle of choice is of the time and three square meals a day and all the usual stuff. When that was true, say, 50 years ago, and nowadays the average working person is struggling to stay off the street, you know you're in trouble because that shows you how much wealth is having to be siphoned away to maintain that failing infrastructure. It's not there to pay people anymore. Mm. You want to pay attention to the quality of the environment because that's the dumping ground where people dump their costs and then their wastes. And when you get to the point where even basic infrastructure like bridges can't be maintained adequately anymore, then you know you're sliding down the slope. Again, the Roman Empire is a great example. You talk to an archaeologist and they'll take you to some of the old aqueducts and they'll say, okay, now this is the section that was built you know, when the Roman Empire was doing really great. And here you can start seeing the repairs and the repairs get cheaper and shoddier and more temporary. You know, and then in 411, it simply stopped working and nobody had the funds to ever start it again. So that's the history of the Roman Empire. You know, one aqueduct at a time. And of course, all of these things are going on in our own society right now. We've gone from these sort of gleaming new cities with the smooth pavement on the roads and everything looks fresh and clean to, well, I mean, the last time I was in New York City, it looked like a third world slum. 
And I'm not speaking of the skin color of the people involved. I'm speaking of the living conditions that people were having to put up with. It was gritty. It was dirty. There were people sleeping on the streets everywhere. Oh, yeah. I live in San Diego, America's finest city, they say. But there are tents all over the downtown area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next to people paying 3000 a month for rent, walking past tents on their way to the car. Exactly. That kind of division. What's happening is that the privileged classes are maintaining their status of living at all costs and letting everyone else fall into extreme poverty. That doesn't last well because the society depends on its working people, not on the people in the $3,000 a month penthouses. It's the people who actually do the work, who are the people on whom society depends. And when they decide, screw it and stop doing the work, or when they can't keep doing the work because they're being paid half what they need to keep themselves fed, or what have you, there are various ways it can play out. But things start really falling apart. And of course, they can also end up voting for somebody that the $3,000 a month people don't like, just despite the $3,000 a month people. And then life gets really interesting. <laughs> That's how Julius Caesar got into power, by the way. The last days of the Roman Republic, the upper classes running the Senate, everything was fine as far as they're concerned. The average people were starving. Julius Caesar comes out, you know, he was a rich guy, but he made the case that he was going to support the common Roman people. And they flocked to him. End of the Roman Republic followed promptly. It's an old story. <laughs> and the cycle repeats. And, and the cycle repeats. Even the people here that I know who are doing well or well enough, they're still kind of just treading enough water to give themselves some breathing room. Uh-huh. And that's all. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like the system is set up so ingeniously because we're all responsible for our own individual bills, individual rent. So it's like very compartmentalized. But mm -hmm. I don't know, how guilty should we feel about our own successes in the wake of what's going on? Guilt is a waste of time. Teaching people to wallow in guilt is a very effective way of controlling them. Yeah. Guilt is irrelevant. It generally means you take yourself too seriously. The thing to do instead of wallowing in guilt is say, okay, how do I want to change? What changes do I want to make in my own life? I've got this success. Okay, is it actually a success? Do I enjoy it? Is this the way I really want to spend the limited number of years I have before I start pushing up daisies? And then we can make changes because I've noticed an enormous number of people, yeah, they're treading water. They're miserable. Mm. A lot of them are just totally miserable. You know, all they have to look forward to at this point is to keep on treading water increasingly frantically until they retire without enough money and very few of us will see a dollar out of Social Security at this point. So what is that to look forward to? Right. Look at the plastic smile that they've stuck on their faces. Look at the eyes. You'll see the pain. You'll see the, the wretchedness that hides there. And most of them will keep doing that simply because it's too frightening to do anything else. To actually turn your back on the empire, turn your back on the official version of what's supposed to be real, think your own thoughts, that's scary. That is crap your pants scary. <laughs> yes. And so to do that, that takes serious guts to actually look at everything you've been taught about the world and say, you know, what if that's a lie? Mm. And then say, okay, you know, here I have this supposed success. You know, I've got this $3,000 a month apartment for which here is what I have to do to maintain this thing. Here is everything that's actually involved. What is my life worth at this point? And that's when you get people who walk away. Mm. 
I had a slogan for a while when I was doing a lot of talking on the future industrial society, which the slogan is collapse now and avoid the rush. <laughs> the idea is we're on a declining arc in the society. We are all going to be a lot poorer than we are now. Okay. So if you accept that voluntarily and start living now as though you were poorer than you are, then you have a bunch of free money, which you can use to prepare yourself. And you also get used to the skills you need because being poor is not easy. Being poor is hard work, frankly. I've done it. My wife and I got by on absurdly little money when she was working fairly poorly paid jobs and I was trying to break into print. You know, it takes work. You have to know what you're doing to actually get by comfortably on a very little bit of money. And take the time to learn that by doing it. And as the economy continues falling apart, you're going to be fine because you already know how to do it. And you will have that extra money and you can use that to get yourself out of debt. Top priority, by the way. Get yourself out of debt. Develop some skills that will enable you to exchange things with other people. You know, Provide them with goods and services so that you can keep yourself afloat in a declining economy. Good advice. And I was going to ask you about that collapse first and avoid the rush because I do – Collapse now and avoid the rush. <laughs> yep. mm -hmm. It really is crucial. Back in the day when progress was actually happening, when things were growing, when we had economic growth and so on, it made all the sense in the world to try to live at the level that you were going to achieve. And people did it. People did it all the time. But we've lost track of the fact that it works the other way too. When society is in decline, you need to drop down a level or two or three, get used to living with a lot, let's get comfortable with it. Learn that it's not a problem that many of the things you were spending money on didn't actually make your life any better. And then you've got that extra money, you've got the extra time, you've got the extra resources, you can make something of yourself, you can detach yourself from the corporate structure, from the empire, and actually have a life worth living. Mm. I like it. And, you know, Dark Age America does a great job of identifying the problems, making the case that this decline is coming. And I didn't get to read Green Wizardry, but the description sounds great. Green Wizardry is a hands-on guide to home-scale energy conservation, backyard food production, and other common-sense responses to scarcity. Well, we know we have these massive problems. Can you talk to us about some of those solutions? If people were to pivot away from the system, what would they do? Okay, I'm going to have to put some context here. One of the things that nobody talks about now is the catastrophic failure of nerve in the United States in the early 1980s. During the 1970s and in the late 60s and all through the 70s, a lot of Americans were gearing up to deal with the crisis of our time, to deal with declining energy resources, declining other resources, environmental problems. That was when the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act were passed and things like that. That was also the golden age of things like solar energy, small-scale wind power, super insulation of houses. All of these local scale technologies that people figured out how to use to get by and have a decent lifestyle when you're not burning umpty million barrels of oil a day. And the problem was that what we got instead was the Reagan counter-revolution. It's morning in America. And an entire generation cashed in their ideals at that point. Well, almost an entire generation. And basically cashed in their grandchildren's future to have a better time in the present. And it was an ugly time. I was doing my first pass through college when Ronald Reagan was elected. I remember in the years immediately afterwards, I was studying ecology. And you started hearing from people, hold it, there are no more jobs in any of the fields we're preparing for. And all of the government funding for alternative energy is being cut. But there are all these nice corporate jobs doing you know, useless and environmentally destructive things, and they're offering the money. And you could just watch people sink and cringe 
and sell out. There were not many of us, but some of us did. I was a kid underfoot in the last half decade or so of the appropriate tech scene, the scene of the people who were doing these things. I'm going to help build a wind turbine with my own hands. You can do it. We're not talking these gargantuan corporate monstrosities. We're talking a wooden propeller and an old truck alternator and a little bit of wiring put on top of a borrowed telephone pole. It got us six volts pretty steadily to keep the light on in the chicken coop. Yes, I lived in a little hippie farm in those days. And this kind of stuff was all over the place. And then nobody wanted to talk about it because, you know, once you sell out, it's kind of awkward to have to talk about all the hopes that you had been praising to the skies before you sold out. So the few of us who didn't sell out kind of clung to this stuff. I still have a very large collection of books from that time. Green Wizardry was my book on that movement. And it wasn't focused on what happened back then. It was, these are the things that we learned. These are the tools that we came up with. All of them are things you can do yourself. You do not have to lobby a big corporation or get the government to do something. You can do things to decrease the amount of energy you use, produce some of your own energy, produce some of your own food, especially the high-value things that have lots of vitamins and minerals, things like backyard vegetables and a chicken coop or a rabbit hutch. You see, you've got this range of skills, this range of techniques that were all worked out in great detail in the late 60s and the 70s. And so my Green Wizardry book was talking about how people can blow the dust off these things and put them back to work. I'm very pleased to say there has been some real enthusiasm toward that. And there are a lot of people who have taken that book and done, as I advised, gone out to their used bookstores and found some of the remaining old books from that period. And they're doing things with it. Mm -hmm. And so there has been a modest revival in the old appropriate text stuff, which I think is great. Because these are things that can actually be preserved for the long term. As I said, they're things you can do yourself, your family, your friends, your community. These are things that don't depend on the empire, that can make your life a lot easier in tough times. Indeed. And it's one of these things where we know that the American system is declining. And we hear a lot of people talking about what we as individuals should be doing differently. And sometimes I want to kick that back and be like, look, most of this damage is probably done by two dozen corporations. What about them? And, uh, you know, then from there, it's like, well, these corporations make their money or, or get their energy from our money. So we have kind of been feeding these beasts and uh, we probably do okay. share some responsibility in how big and totalitarian they've gotten. Kind of like a parallel to the Internet. It used to be a Wild West. Now it's all Google, Facebook, Amazon. Well, how did they get so big? We use these things every day. And now it's just a military surveillance platform, and we probably could have not given them so much of our attention and so much of our money. So it is a, a cycle, a synergistic kind of thing. Pretty much so. And this is one of the reasons that the whole issue of guilt doesn't matter. The thing that I would say is, ultimately, those of us who are awake, those of us who have figured out what's going on, or at least have gotten some glimpses and who want to make changes in our lives, we are a small minority. We're always going to be a small minority. So those big corporations are going to keep on doing what they do because that's what they do. You and I are not going to be able to affect that. We can decide and arguably should decide not to give them our money. And that's something that's important, something worth doing, because when you buy things from them, you are buying dependence on them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you don't buy from them, you're not making yourself dependent on them. And this is very important, of course, if you want to have any kind of independence in your life. So don't use Google. <laughs> don't shop on Amazon. Uh, don't use any of the big corporate titans. Just cut yourself off. And there are lots of alternatives. Just get used to them. And then 
look at what you can do to change your own life in the direction of your own values and your own dreams. You may not be able to change the world, but if the world is going to be changed, it's going to change because enough people change their own lives. That's the only way real change ever happens. Right. Right now, if there was to be some kind of unexpected vast revolution and the whole system were to be thrown down and everyone were to have exactly the same mentality they have now, something identical to the old system would be back in place in a matter of weeks. The Russian revolution is a great idea. They threw out the Tsars, they put in the commissars. Big deal. <laughs> you know, you've still got the secret police, you've still got the civil rights problems, you've still got all the same problems that were under the Tsarist government and the communist government. Because until people change their minds, you can't change anything else about them. Right. And this is kind of one of those areas where, as a conspiracy-minded guy, I usually start getting into the thoughts of uh, suppressed technologies that are more harmonious mm -hmm. with natural systems that, if unchained, could probably do some good. We have seen that people have made water-powered engines and then they sometimes end up dead. Uh, we hear about things like maglev trains and possibly UFO technology, but I guess it's kind of arbitrary to talk about things that just aren't on the table. Mm -hmm. The thing is, if you can't get to them, or if you can't get to them without ending up with a bullet in your head, it may be useful to know about them. But focus on the technologies that can fly, if you will, under the radar. Mm -hmm. Focus on the things you can do that people don't know about. This is one of the reasons that magic is especially useful, because it doesn't necessarily draw anyone's attention. Mm. Yeah. The great thing about magic, the way that it's been mocked and despised and covered up with Hollywood crap of the Harry Potter variety, is that nobody takes it seriously. And so you can do all kinds of things with it. You can change your life completely using it. And if anyone hears about it, they go, ha, 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 magic, right. Okay. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to be ignored and despised and treated as though you don't matter by the right people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Provocative. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right on. Magic is. Magic is. Indeed. <laughs> wow. Well, John, this has just been a bit of a whirlwind of the magical and the practical. And I got a ton of respect for your discipline and knowledge on pretty complex things. So, of course, thanks for spending some time with me. Thank you for having me on. It's been a fun conversation. <laughs> and before we call it in, let the good people know about your blog, any upcoming work you might have coming down the pike, all the promotional things, the reason we do this. All the promotional <laughs> stuff. Okay. The blog is www.ecosophia.net. You can also find me at my DreamWidth journal at ecosophia.dreamwidth.org. My blog is regular on Wednesdays. I do various stuff on my journal. That's an easy way to keep track. In terms of stuff coming out, I mentioned the conspiracy book, which will be out from Sterling. The big news, though, is that I've been doing some fiction of late. And it is, of course, magical fiction. And it actually riffs off the work of H.P. Lovecraft in a funny way. Ah. This is a seven-volume series, Fantasies with Tentacles, I call them. <laughs> and The Weird of Holly is the title, and the first volume, The Weird of Holly Innsmouth, will be out shortly. I'm not exactly sure, but quite soon. And the other six should follow in due order. Again, I'll be splashing the information all over my blog and my Dream With Journal, so pick up a copy and read it. Right on. Very cool. Well, I guess that does it. Thanks again. I enjoyed every minute of it. Keep fighting the good fight and take care out there. You're welcome and thank you. 
And just like that, friends, there it is. John Michael Greer, the big J-M-G. The man has little patience for laziness, guilt, chicken littles, and the television. And I salute him for it, mainly because he practices what he preaches. And because of that discipline, he's very knowledgeable about a lot of things and has written an insane number of books. And I always think that's respectable because it's just so difficult. And when you're gone, you really have left a mark on the world. Watching Netflix, playing Red Dead Redemption, this kind of stuff completely robs you of your potential and your impact on the world. But it is fun, and fun is easy, and addictive, and I'm as guilty as anyone. But spending time with someone like John is helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you. He made a lot of good points, too. I think this one was in the Plus Show, but the CFR publishes a regular journal. Does anyone read it? It's easy to make a YouTube video that the sky is falling and it's all the CFR's fault and Obama's a CFR member and all that kind of stuff. But like many of our guests who talk about natural law and karma say, they do tell us what they're going to do. And many of us don't even have the discipline to read through it. Again, I'm guilty, but I think confronting these truths makes us better conspiracists if we level up the way that we go about things. I said something to this effect on Twitter, but I get a lot of pushback when I criticize the conspiracy community, a community that I'm always going to be a part of. But when I look at people who I used as examples growing up of how to think and how to navigate this world, I always cite George Carlin and Bill Hicks because I was young. And I thought these guys were really great. They were outspoken, but well-spoken rebels who just blew my young mind with deep, biting analysis of society. And I thought, man, I want to be like that. And they both mentioned having their minds blown by magic mushrooms. And so I knew that I was not in a hurry, but that I was going to do mushrooms in the proper setting because this was a milestone for thinkers that I wanted to be like, and I was going to go through that. And it was something that not a lot of people do. When you consider the wider culture, I don't think many people are doing that. But if you consider us as a community, I don't hear a lot of people saying, man, those conspiracy folks really have their shit together. Maybe I should think more like them. Instead, we're ridiculed. And we can't change that. And I'm kind of thinking along the lines of Malcolm X when he wanted his followers to dress in suits and bow ties. He wanted young black men to look like they had their shit together in the face of people who think poorly of them. We can have that same mentality. Be better as a subculture and make people think differently about the value of the conspiratorial perspective. It's not tinfoil hats and trailer parks. It's rebellious, rugged entrepreneurs and rejecting the boxes and cogs of society and coming out better for it. <laughs> I mean, that's my stump speech. That's my ambition for us as a community to navigate reality better than other groups so that we can lead by example, because if we have a better grip on the truth and the lies of society and we work to be our best selves, we should be better at navigating life than other groups, other ways of looking at the world, right? Shouldn't we? What if we really did reject the mainstream paradigm and fully embraced that, ditched the TV, started getting healthy, living better, stopped letting corporate poisons into our body, whether it's cigarettes or glyphosate? What if we stopped being addicted to the cell phones we criticize and started fixing our local communities? Maybe you agree with me 
Maybe you don't, but I want to be proud to say I'm conspiracy-minded, not feel like I'm the black sheep of the family. Thanks, Alex Jones, for making us all look crazy and irrational. But for me personally, I do get to exercise this, especially around the holidays, because I'm the conspiracy podcast king of San Diego. And yeah, that title has a lot of qualifiers, and it's whittled down to a very specific small pond of folks. But I can stand tall in the face of people who thought I was some crazy, rebellious punk kid who'd never do anything, and eventually I'd have to get some shit job like everyone else. I've gotten to show those people that I wasn't wrong, and I'm retired at 30, and I wasn't going to play ball in an abusive system any more than I needed to. Sure, I had my lost decade of retail, but that's a small price to pay compared to the price I've seen many others paying. And I want that for everyone who listens to a show like this. This should be a key to living better. I want us all to be happy with how we navigate life, not burdened by the knowledge we have, not depressed and defeated, but creative, nimble economically, and successful and fulfilled. (sighs) What a rant, right? But JMG is an inspiration to me, even if I might disagree with him on some small things. That's true for everyone that shows up here, but he's a committed druid, so he's going to care about things like the environment quite a bit, and so do I. It's a shame it's so politicized, but there is truth to the fact that we've supported and bought products from the companies that are killing our home. We need to have a better standard for them, too. And of course, with this episode today, the magical thread was weaved in and out of the conversation, but also a lot of practical advice was given, too. And it ended up pretty well-rounded, actually, I think. He had some good lines, like, The Empire is the sum total of all our collective obedience. I mean, whew, that's a raw truth. It's poetic, and it offers a useful outlook. I don't agree 100%, but it's a productive thing to sit and reflect on. We also touched on those ideas like, if you didn't have the traps of empire, you wouldn't be so motivated to rise above and don't brood so much over what they're doing wrong. Instead, do something right. It's not about being an apologist for the elite or to turn a blind eye. Putting them under the microscope is what we do here, but we should also be a bit careful to not give them so much attention that life and opportunities pass us by. Maybe we can try to be a counterbalance, and that means doing difficult work to be an exceptional person. It's not just knowing. Knowing is not enough. You know, that's the stage I hope we're in. And as he said, focus on what the solutions to those bad actions would be rather than the bad actions themselves. We need progress, and we kind of need it fast. So get your magic game right, people. (laughs) You know, imagine your life is like a play. It's a tired example, I know, but imagine it's a play that runs on a script, and you're the only unknown factor. You and your free will. And for the best of the play, you really need to sync up well with the script and how it's running And that's kind of what keeping an astrological calendar is like. Imagine you had the script in hand and it might say, hey, big opportunity on page 36. Well, you better be prepared to pounce by page 36. You better get in sync with the rhythm and ride the tide because it's absolutely not hidden from you. It's just not dangled in front of you. Well, I'm dangling, higher side chatters. I'm dangling. And I'm hoping that some good, noble people Start engaging with the tools to improve reality instead of mainly the assholes, you know, the psychopaths. 
And I think John is a great guest to give us some reframing of the whole magical issue and some better ways to think about it and just general good life advice. Of course, if you liked the first hour, we talked for a whole second hour about things like what's coming for Americans and seeking techniques to avoid crisis, third rail thinking and breaking that binary grip, a beginner's plan to betterment and starter magic, the art of memory. Man, I could use that. We also talked about something called the Raspberry Jam Principle of Black Magic, some of John Michael Greer's unsung heroes of magical history, also John's translation and thoughts on the Picatrix. I think that is a real accomplishment. But then we got into translating ancient grimoires and resurrecting magical texts and how we can actually get involved and do it ourselves. It really isn't that hard when you have software-based translators. It's just that nobody's doing it. And we also talked about my obsession of how to properly scale and think about entities' influences on our world. All fun stuff. You know you can join the Higher Side Chats Plus via my own website or Patreon, and I'm going to love you forever. As for THC news, I hit a personal milestone this week that is another example that life feels like some kind of movie because when I was a kid, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, I was a big WCW wrestling fan. Which, of course, their major storyline was the good guys versus the NWO. How weird that I'm a conspiracy podcaster, and that was the term they used for the heels. But one of my favorite wrestlers was always Raven. He used Edgar Allan Poe quotes. He was dark and emo. He wore Neil Gaiman shirts to the ring. I had his posters on my wall. I bought his t-shirts. Well... A few months ago, he wrote me saying that he's a fan of the Higher Side Chats, and I was just blown away. Sure, we have a decent audience, but the chances of the wrestler who was my favorite being a fan of what I do, and then talking about it on his own show, which is actually where I think I learned about it, as a mutual fan told me, well, he ended up interviewing me for his own podcast, a podcast that does not have guests very often. So it was a real treat and a real honor and not very probable because it's not an interview show. So it's just a weird little subplot of my life that makes me feel in sync with the universe. And now I can scratch two wrestlers off my media promotion list, Chris Jericho and Raven. Any other wrestlers out there with podcasts? I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> but life is just weird. And if you're interested, he did put the first half hour of our conversation at the end of his latest episode, and he put the extra hour on Patreon. Just figured I'd say something about that. Tell Raven you liked it if you check it out and you do. And lastly, the Higher Side Chats joint session for this month will be on the 20th, 7 p.m. Pacific time. I'll post the actual call-in links on Facebook and Twitter the day of. Come join the fun, and I'll see you then. Your move, conspiracy community. Your fucking move. This is important. Hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia. Not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can. To ask you a question. Cause I know your head is still in the sand. 
slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Just see that we're so 